Right, okay, so we're going to do a little series uh, this week and next uh, three weeks, including this one, just looking at part of the story of uh, Jesus coming, being born amongst us. And uh, we thought we would just do this by looking at different characters in the story. Now, this is partly coming out of a book that I uh, sent around on those of you who are on the WhatsApp group, a guy called Tim Keller, who's a pastor, writer from the States. Many of you will be aware of his work. And he's written a book called Hidden Christmas. It's been around a few years. It's a really great book. If you just kind of in this season and you think, I'd just like to read and think about the Christmas story, uh, it's excellent. So I want to just recommend that to you. And so we're going to look at it. And we're going to look particularly today at the passages around Mary and how she responds to the news that comes to her uh, about Jesus being born. So we're going to read um, quite a long passage, so much longer than we would normally read, but I think it's quite helpful to read this. So stay with me. We're going to read from Luke 1, from verse 5. So first chapter of Luke uh, in the New Testament from verse 5. We're going to read it all the way through to verse 38. And we're going to hear, if you like, the story here of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then the story of Mary. And these two, if you like, there's an interesting kind of mirroring that goes on in these two stories. And we're going to see what this story teaches us about the gospel, but also what obviously what we can learn, particularly from the way Mary responds to the news that comes to her. So, so we're going to read from verse 5. And uh, yeah, stay with me. So in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as the priest before God. <coughs> he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, not surprisingly, and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I quite like this response, I am Gabriel. <laughs> it's like there's a slight sense of like, oh, man, I'm frustrated. <laughs> I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you about this good news. Now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realised he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, 
and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so six months later, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Same words. Okay. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, was, uh, she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answers. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So right at the start of this story, right at the start of Luke, what we see is there are two stories, two pregnancies, and the announcement of both cases come by an angelic visitation. So now I don't know what you think about the idea of angelic visits. Okay, If you've grown up in the West, like I have in the UK, we are hardwired by culture to, have, to struggle to believe in anything that's particularly supernatural like this. Anything that we can't explain rationally, logically, that we can't somehow put in the box that our brain can kind of like understand, we struggle to get our, our heads around it. Obviously, for those of you who haven't grown up in the West, we might view this very differently. Okay, you may have a much easier, more enabled ability to understand immediately and expect the supernatural. Whereas in the West, we kind of like we're, we're children of the, the Enlightenment. We, we place the idea of logic and rationale very high. And sometimes we kind of go, well, God has to fit into my box. Okay? Yet, wherever we're from, I would say all of us have this kind of heart desire for something transcendent. Something that actually, although, although in the West we're like, I need to be able to understand it, there's something inside of us which is yearning for something that actually is beyond us. And that is why lots of people in the West love the idea of Christmas, even if they don't believe in the Christmas story, because there's something about it that they touch that makes them feel different. They like the sense of kind of, oh, a heritage, something about the story, something, even if they don't believe the story, they kind of quite like it because it's drawing them into, well, maybe there's something hopeful, something beyond, something transcendent that I can't explain, that doesn't fit into a box, that I can't buy, that moves me. And so they like the idea of it, even though they struggle with it. And the story is fundamentally a supernatural story, right? It's there, black and white. Gabriel shows up with Zachariah and gives Zachariah a bit of a hard time. I am Gabriel. <laughs> and if Gabriel says that to you, you know you're in trouble. Okay, I am Gabriel. Do you know where I've been standing? I've been standing in the presence. And shows up to Mary and says, I'm Gabriel and I've got news. It's, a fundamental, it's fundamentally a supernatural story. God breaks in miraculously 
and both lives are turned, interrupted and completely turned upside down. Now, when it comes to Zachariah and Elizabeth, we know a bit more in this story than we do in this part of the story about Mary. So for Zachariah, we know that Zachariah and Elizabeth have a heritage. Elizabeth's in the line of Aaron. Okay, so she's kind of biblical royalty, you know, like connected to Moses. Look, she can trace her line. So she's kind of got some heritage. We know that the passage says they've both been seen as righteous. We know that they've been praying because Gabriel says your prayers have been answered. So they've clearly been praying. We know they're both old and we know that Elizabeth is unable to conceive. So there's a, there's a story here of disappointment, a story of sadness and pain. There's a story of shame because obviously in that culture, the inability to have a child and a son would have felt a sense of shame about it. Elizabeth goes on to say that. So there's, there's a backstory here as well. And actually, if you read that story, it should remind you of someone in the Old Testament. Does it remind you of anybody? Sarah. Abram, Abram and Sarah. Obviously, there's that, exactly the kind of same picture of old, unable to conceive, and yet God comes and speaks to them, and suddenly a child, a miraculous child is born. And then we see it here again. Mary, we know a little bit less in this part of the passage. She's a, we do know she's a virgin. We know she is not married, but she's pledged to be married to Joseph, who has his own royal heritage. Okay, trace back to David. And the scholars reckon that Mary was about 15. Okay, so she is very young. Okay, she would be, what's that? In Dutch schools, that's grade 10, 9, 9, 10, somewhere around that. Pretty young. And Mary and Elizabeth, if you like, are at different ends of the spectrum. One, it's impossible to have children. For the other, it's inappropriate to have children. Okay? But what is consistent in both stories is something impossible is made possible. Right? Something humanly that cannot happen happens. Something utterly supernatural takes place. God breaks in completely unexpectedly. So Zachariah's been praying, but he's still not expecting anything to happen. Okay? I don't know if you ever pray and don't expect anything to happen. <laughs> so he doesn't believe it, even though he's been praying for it. I don't know. I mean, I can relate to that. Like you pray and you think, wow, something happened. And it's like a surprise to us, even though we've been praying, which is a weird thing about praying, right? But God, it doesn't appear to worry God too much, even though he's not expecting what he's just prayed for. So that should encourage you that sometimes it's okay to pray for things, even where in your heart you're going, I don't know if this is going to happen. Because he's been praying for years. And then Gabriel shows up, it's going, you've been heard. And he's like, he still didn't believe. Still didn't believe, even when an angel was standing in front of him, he's still struggling to believe it. Okay? It's one thing for me to say to you, it will happen, okay? And you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe. But for the angelic visitation to come and speak to you and give you a bit of a hard time and say, do you know who I am? And do you know where I've been standing? And him still not really get it. Right? It's written down so, the there we go. Yeah. So, but they've been praying. God breaks in unexpectedly. And God picks out, in these both stories, the most unlikely candidates. An old woman who's unable to conceive and a young virgin who's not married. Right? It's interesting that God picks unlikely candidates. The whole story is told and devised and constructed in a way to show us something of what the gospel is like and something of who the gospel is for. The most unlikely candidates in the most unlikely situation. And both of them are the recipients of God's unmerited, undeserved, lavish, supernatural power and kindness. They are favoured. So Gabriel says 
to Mary, Mary twice says, you are highly favoured, Mary. Okay, and Elizabeth's story, her own testimony about herself is, I have been favoured. And that's the gospel. Right at the start of the whole thing, you see something of the gospel in the story of Elizabeth and Mary. Right in these first, God picks out the most unlikely, difficult, bleak, barren circumstances, graciously breaks in, offers new life, a new start, and a totally new perspective. You see the gospel in all the details. So, and that's a picture, isn't it? And you see it again and again. The shepherds are a picture of the gospel. The, the, the magi are a picture. Foreigners brought in from outside right into the tent of the story. It tells you something about who the, what the gospel, why Jesus is coming. The whole story is not just a nice story. It's a picture of the gospel. And in Elizabeth and Mary, you see a picture of the gospel. Two of the most unlikely candidates, two of the most bleak and barren circumstances, unable to conceive, too young to have a baby, completely unmerited. God breaks in, completely undeserved, and does something supernaturally. And what Mary and Elizabeth have to do is they have to receive what God is saying. That's a picture of the gospel. But it's also a picture of the gospel in a kind of quite unusual way, because for Elizabeth... She says, you've taken away my shame. I don't know if you saw that bit in the passage. She goes, you've, I'm highly favoured and you have removed my shame. Because obviously, like we said, to not be able to have a child was, was meant shame for her in her culture. But for Mary, now, actually having been pregnant as a single woman in that culture would have brought huge shame. So for Elizabeth, God's intervention takes away shame. For Mary, actually, it causes her a problem of shame. Because for everybody else, everybody would have known she's pregnant, she's not married, and forever they would have considered her to have slept with Joseph before she got married, and they would consider Jesus to be illegitimate. Everybody would have known, and everybody would have thought. And then again, you've got a little picture of the gospel. Because fundamentally, the coming of Jesus removes our shame. No more condemnation. Your shame is removed. So whatever you've done in your life, the shame attached to that is broken. Now, some of us need to learn to walk in the freedom of that and to get out of the shame that we still carry that we shouldn't carry. It's not ours anymore. But shame is lifted because of what Jesus has done in our life. But also, the flip side of this is Mary's experience is ours as well. Because actually, when you become a Christian, it means that you're going to follow Jesus you're going, to make life, you're going to make decisions in your life that will look crazy at times to the world. You're going to do things with your money and your time and your relationships <coughs> that the world would not understand. And you will be viewed in some sense as odd. And at times there will be a sense of shame about how you are viewed by other people because they don't understand who you're following. So both Elizabeth and Mary's experience is something of our own experience. Elizabeth's shame is removed. But Mary's now life and trajectory is... Man, people are going to look at me like I'm really, I've lost it, and I've missed it, and I'm going to have to carry it. And when you become a Christian, you're making a decision, I'm going to follow you. That means for some people, they're not going to understand me. They're not going to understand the decisions I make, why I do those things, because they don't understand who I'm following. And so again, you get a little picture of the gospel. But for both Mary and Elizabeth, the key thing is, is how do they receive what Gabriel comes to say to them. It's something as a picture, and Tim Keller in his book talks about that Mary especially is hold, held up as an example of how to receive the good news of the gospel. 
There's something in there about how do we receive what, the, the, what God is saying to us. Neither of them contribute in any way, but we have to choose to receive. We have to be what Jesus talks about in terms of good soil. So there's something in here about how to receive. And there's three things in particular that Keller picks out, which I just want to talk about briefly, about how to receive. Now, this is relevant to people who are not Christians, about often how they go on the journey from being not a believer to a believer. But it's also relevant for those of us who are, who are Christians who have already made that decision. Three areas, okay? And you can see it in the passage. So you might want the, the, the passage open in front of you. It says this. Firstly, Mary questions. In other words, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you switch your brain off, right? It's, that's not how it works at all. Mary questions. So it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The word wondered doesn't translate very well into English, okay? It is, uh, what Keller says, is, it's like an accounting word. It's like you're taking an audit. She was questioning, wondering, accounting, auditing what was being said to her. How many of us are accountants in the room? One. Okay, two accountants. How many of us are engineers? Three. How many of us are engineers? Just as a... Yeah, yeah. And there's more who are not in the room as well. I've never been in a church with so many engineers, okay? But... I know, indeed. But if you're an accountant, or I imagine engineer, rarely do you get in situations where you just go, oh, let's just try it anyway, and you don't even switch on your brain. You've got to engage with it, right, and use your intellect. And there's something about Mary where she engages with her brain about what is being said to her. Okay? It's not just blind faith. There is, obviously, there's a step of faith, but it's not blind faith. She questions. So she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. In other words, it's okay to question. Now, it's interesting that Elizabeth, um, Zachariah questions, and it's clearly not so okay for the way he questions, okay? But Mary asks her question in such a way where it's okay. And part of the journey of faith is it's okay to question. I just want to say that's super important. It's not like you become a Christian and therefore, and then you kind of jump into, you know, here's the line of faith. People say, well, you pray the prayer. By the way, I prayed a prayer, but I think I became a Christian lots of different times. I know that sounds theoretically weird, but you understand. It was like a process for me. And you cross the line and it's like, well, well over here I had loads of questions, but now I've become a Christian. I don't have any questions at all. Okay. But in church, sometimes you can feel like, oh, I shouldn't have any questions to become a Christian. No, no, no. Clearly, Mary asks questions. She's troubled, like, what is going on? Right? It's okay to have some questions. In fact, often, faith is a mix of just believing, trusting, and still having some questions. So in Mark 9, Jesus delivers the boy who's mute and deaf and speaks to the father and challenges the father about does he believe, and the father says, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me. It's this mixture. I do believe, but help me with my questions. Help me, help me don't, to not be held back by the questions, the doubts I have. But faith wins for that man. Okay? So she has questions. And uh, like we said, Zechariah asks questions, but he asks Seemingly in a quite different, different attitude, it's difficult for us to discern what the difference was. But Gabriel didn't like his question so much, and so he had a bit of a harder time in terms of the next few months. Although, either way, God still has his way, right? Even with some questions. Second thing is, in, in her journey, her faith grows. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Often, becoming a Christian is a journey. Rarely does anybody go from, I don't believe in anything, to, I completely believe. Okay? 
that almost never happens, at least not in the West. It may well happen in other cultures more where you're more open to spiritual things. But in the West, I would say that rarely happens, which is why evangelism in the West is often more of a process of helping people go from the journey of, I don't believe at all, and Christians are nuts, to Christians are okay, and maybe I'm open, but I don't know, to, well, maybe I do believe, and I do quite like Christians, actually, are quite, they're good. And they do this journey to the point of faith. And it's rarely from here to here like that. It can happen, but rarely does it happen, in my experience. Culturally, now, in the West, it's often a journey. And it's a journey for her. So she starts with a question, and then her next step, she says, is she gets to a point of accepting. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now, that point of acceptance does not mean that she understands everything completely. I'm sure she didn't understand everything completely. How would she possibly have understood what Gabriel was saying to her, really? But she gets to a point of saying, okay, I don't get it all, but I'm happy to trust you. And becoming a Christian is getting to the point of saying, even with some of my questions, I'm, I'm, I actually think I can trust you. I believe you're real. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to turn away from my old life, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to trust you. And I'm trusting you, Jesus, that on the journey, you'd help me understand some of the questions I have. And Mary gets there. And then the third part is this. Mary gets to a place then of worship. It's interesting. If you read on in the story, Mary visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Mary have this kind of exchange. And Elizabeth effectively prophesies over Mary who she is carrying in her womb. And it's at that point that it's like it all seems to come together for Mary. And she kind of is into, she sings this incredible song. Right? That's not where she starts. She starts with questions and like, what, how can this possibly be? Have you seen my circumstances? I'm a virgin. I'm not married. This can't. Point. How can this be? To going, I'm the Lord's servant. To the point of now, she sings this song, and there's this journey from questioning to accepting, to worship. But it's interesting she gets to the point of worship through Elizabeth. Okay, doesn't always work like that, but it is interesting how it takes sometimes other people to help us make that step. That's one of the reasons why community is so important. Being part of a church is so important because none of us were ever made to do this on our own. One of the primary ways we hear God is through other people. Yes, we hear God when we read the Bible on our own. Uh, we hear when we, we pray on our own. But also we hear God through others. Some of, you, some of you will know this, but when Sarah and I were deciding about leaving London, wondering about whether we should leave, wondering about where we have been called to go, and that whole journey, which took us about two years. We did three things to try and hear God, okay? One was we used to go, we used to pray, talk and pray together quite a lot. It was in the middle of lockdown, so we used to go into Greenwich Park in South London on a Friday and go and walk and pray and stand on top of the hill and sometimes cry and kind of like count the cost. God, are you really spent? So we'd do that. The other thing we did was we found people that we knew were prophetic who prayed and we didn't tell them what was going on but we just said would you pray tell us if you sense God speaking to you and we had a number of people who we trusted were prophetic people who sensed God quite clearly and they they spoke to us and we had some other people who just spoke to us out of the blue prophetically which was pretty remarkable because we started to feel there were some themes but the other way we did it was we went to people that we trusted who we thought were wise and we just told them what was going on and we're like what do you think Tell us what you think. And I felt like I had conversations with people who said stuff to me, and they were like, 
prophetic conversations. They were very normal. No one suddenly started speaking in a different voice, and there were no angelic visitations. There was no, ah, in the background as they were speaking. But I, they said stuff, and I was like, that feels really weighty, what you've just said to me. And we would talk about it afterwards, and we would sense, I feel God speaking in that comment. We've heard that comment before and before. Okay? So that's, we need each other, in other words. You are not meant to, I am not meant to make it as a Christian on my own. Okay? We need to be in relationship with one another. That's why in the New Testament, pretty much every reference to growing as a Christian, sanctification is the theological word, is always in the context of community and relationship. Encourage one another, strengthen one another, challenge one another. You can't do that on your own. Okay? And in the West, there's this trend to extract yourself from church and do a private faith that just doesn't exist in the Bible. We're not meant to, it doesn't work effectively. You may survive just about, but you will never flourish, in other words. And Mary, interesting, makes the step through Elizabeth. And she goes on that journey from questioning to accepting to worshipping. And that is often the story of people who go from not being Christians to actually coming to a place of faith. And that may be some of our stories. Okay? But it is also relevant to those who are already Christians as well. Because we experience all those seasons still in our lives, I would say. There are seasons, aren't there, where you feel like singing. I'm not going to ask you to do that right now. But it's like, it's like you f- the things that you believe you're feeling, everything's in colour. Yeah, I don't know if you're in that season right now. But when it, you, just, you hear a message and you can feel the joy, you sense God close to you, you're praying, you're sensing God, seeing God answer prayers. There's a season, if you like, of singing sometimes in your faith walk, which is great. Perfect. Faith is stirring. But there are also seasons of challenge where you walk through like wilderness times, where you have more questions than songs in your heart, where you have more doubts or queries than you do have a sense of conviction and leading. And sometimes our lives are a blend of both of those things. In fact, often they're a blend of both of those things. Just like the guy in Mark 9 who says, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And there's this blend We walk through seasons of questioning and seasons of singing. And I don't know what season you're in right now, but I suspect you could be in one or the other, or you could be a bit of both. I feel close to Jesus. My faith feels alive. But actually, I'm troubled by this question or this doubt or this concern. It could be sometimes triggered by an experience we go through. Sometimes it's triggered by an experience of a friend or a cultural question. How does the Bible, how do we relate to this issue? I don't know. I'm troubled how my faith relates to this big cultural question. It could be a whole bunch of things. But what's particularly interesting about Mary, and we're going to close with this, is Mary's response, Mary's journey, pivots on one phrase that I think is very powerful but very simple. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me, be to me as you have said. In the end, ultimately... We all have to decide who we're going to follow. We all have to decide who we're going to trust, who we are going to surrender to. It's not the place where we have every answer. It's not the place where we have, there's no questions left. But it is the moment, or if you like, the decision that everything else pivots on. I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. And interestingly, the phrase that comes up again and again, both for Mary and at Zechariah, 
is this phrase, and understandably, if you've just seen Gabriel, is don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. I understand there's an angel, don't be afraid. But I think that's also not just about the angel. I think it's about the news. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Every time good news is announced to the shepherds and everybody else, good news, you are highly favoured, don't be afraid. And I think something in this story, part of the teaching of this story is God is saying to us, I don't want you to be afraid. There's good news coming. You might be in the midst of very challenging circumstances. The whole Christmas story, Jesus is born into the midst of very challenging circumstances. To a virgin who are on the run, refugees, who then get sought and chased by Herod. Okay, they have nowhere to live. They are born into the most bleak circumstances because God's come to redeem the most bleak circumstances and people who are in the most bleak circumstances. The whole story is constructed to show us what the gospel is about and why he's come. And God says to Mary and to Elizabeth, you're highly favoured and I don't want you to be afraid. And when you become a Christian, part of what you hear spoken over you is, you are highly favoured and I don't want you to be afraid. So... Uh, we're going to close there and we're going to sing a song but I'd love us just to stand I'm just going to pray and um, so let's stand where we are and I'm just going to pray and then Stop's going to help us with a song